All right, good morning. Let's, let's jump in and get started. This seems like a lively bunch, which is fun. So come on in, find a spot. So thank you all um, for joining me to talk about anxiety. Um, my name is Ariana O'Day. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, and this is not a watermelon, I am pregnant. Um, and so you might notice I get a little breathless sometimes. I might, this is my like teaching stance is just kneeling on a chair. So that's just taking care of my body, but I'm good, I feel good. Um, and so um, I've been able to teach this seminar in previous summers, but it's been a few years since I've done it. So um, I'm excited to, to do it again. Um, I have, I'm actually a resident of Mount Hermon. I live up, up the road. And um, I have a private practice that's just down the road from here. It's a pretty sweet deal. And I'm very passionate about integrating faith in the Christian life with mental health because I truly believe God cares deeply about our mental health. It's part of who we are. It's part of who he created us to be. He created us mind, body, and spirit. And so, you know, when one of those things is off, that's going to affect the rest of it. And so I think it's so important as Christians that we do pay attention to our mental and emotional health because, again, God created us as emotional beings. And so that's a little bit of why I like to teach on stuff like this. Um, in my practice, I've seen... Um, you know, people who've been following the Lord for years are so faithful, but they've struggled with anxiety their whole life, and they just beat themselves up, which does not help. Um, and so I just know when people get some principles, some understanding, some more information, that can be so liberating. Um, and so that's my hope today. And I'm guessing that you're all here either because you yourself um, can be prone to anxiety or you have someone close to you who can be um, or maybe you work with people who can be and so I'm, I'm guessing you're here for some form of a personal reason um, but whatever reason brought you here maybe you just want to learn um, maybe anxiety isn't something you deal with too much um, but you just want to learn and that's great too so I'm happy you're here and um, if at any time something I'm saying doesn't make sense or you have a question, please feel free to interrupt me. Um, I do not mind being interrupted. Um, I teach graduate students as well, and they're always like, wait, what? Like, <laughs> um, and so I am used to being interrupted, and I'm going to have a kid, so I'm going to get interrupted all the time. So it's good practice. So let's talk about, you know, what do we mean when we say anxiety? Because that word gets thrown around a lot right now. Like people are like, oh my anxiety, oh my anxiety. And, um, and that can mean some different things. So anxiety itself is a normal human emotion. You know, if we listed all the emotions we experience, anxiety's on there. And there are no bad emotions. There may be emotions that we don't necessarily enjoy feeling, but all of our emotions are signals. You know, they all have a purpose. And I believe that if we listen to them, you know, it's a way that God can even communicate to us. There's a great book 
called Why Emotions Matter by Tristan Collins, who's a Christian trauma therapist, much like myself. Um, her husband is one of the co-founders of the Bible Project, if you've ever heard of the Bible Project, um, and he contributes as well. So great book on emotions um, from a Christian perspective. Um, so why emotions matter. And so anxiety in and of itself, why, why emotions matter. Oh, Tristan Collins. Yeah, great book. And so, yeah, you're welcome. So anxiety in and of itself isn't a bad thing. Um, actually, if we don't ever have anxiety, um, that can actually not be a good thing. Um, the right amount of stress or anxiety actually helps us to perform. You know, if you have, let's say you're a student and you have um, a big final exam, but you have no level of stress or anxiety about it, you're not worried about it at all, how motivated would you be to prepare or study? If I had no level of stress or worry about giving this seminar, I probably wouldn't prepare very much. I would, I'd just be like, eh, it's gonna be fine. And then I probably wouldn't do as good of a job, right? So stress and anxiety, to the right degree, actually does motivate us. It helps us to perform well. Um, it also, you know, again, it signals like, oh, that something matters to us. People tend to only get anxious about things that matter to them. Um, and so, again, in and of itself, anxiety is not our enemy. It's not the bad guy. But um, when it becomes chronic, persistent, or so intense that it interferes with our ability to live our daily lives, that's when it does become a problem. And that's when we might say, you know, if someone comes to my office, I might say, you know, you have an anxiety disorder. Um, you know, something where this isn't just an emotion that comes and goes, like it's a persistent part of your life that comes up sometimes for no apparent reason. Um, also anxiety is caused, um, or it's a response to a perceived threat um, or an anticipation of a future threat or a future event. Um, when you think about anxiety, you know, another way to say that is fear of the future. Fear is when we're afraid of something that's happening right now. The example I use is if you're hiking in the woods and um, a bear pops out and starts chasing you, that's fear. That's happening right now. I'm not saying you're going to get chased by a bear in the woods, don't worry. I'm just giving you all anxiety about hiking. Um, I have never seen a bear up here, so I think you're good. But <laughs> um, anxiety would be if you're hiking in the woods and you're thinking, what if like a wild animal comes out and chases me? That what if is indicative of anxiety because it hasn't happened yet. So anxiety is fear of something that has not yet happened. And that's one reason why it can be so hard to kick because you can't just point to, you, you don't know yet. And so that can be really tricky. Um, anxiety can be a feeling of worry, nervousness, unease, again, typically about an imminent event or something with an uncertain outcome. And again, there's very normal times to feel that anxiety. Um, I'm gonna give birth to my first kid. I have a little anxiety about it. I've never done this before. <laughs> I don't know how it's gonna go. And so, 
yeah, I have a little anxiety about it, but it's not running my life. It's not taking over. It's not keeping me from functioning. But if I'm honest, like, I'm a little like, okay, this is going to be interesting. So, um, and then again, we can get into anxiety disorder land where some people are anxious all the time and it's not about a specific thing, it's just general, just general anxiety. Um, there's some people who get anxious in certain situations, social anxiety, um, there's phobias, um, pe there's people who have panic attacks, um, sometimes for no apparent reason. So there's a lot of ways that anxiety can present itself in our lives. But again, it's, it's important to recognize that anxiety in and of itself is not bad. There is a time to be anxious. Um, there is a time for that, you know, worrying about the future because it will help us to prepare if we can. Like for me, um, instead of, and I'll get into this more later, instead of just sitting and being like, oh, I hope my birth goes okay. Uh, I'm, I'm motivated to do my prenatal yoga and Pilates and all that to be strong. You know, I'm doing what I can. Um, I'm very motivated to do everything I can to make sure, you know, my birth goes as smoothly as possible, as far as is in my power. So that's a good thing. That's, I'm doing good things for myself. So I'm gonna, that's like my main example right now, so sorry. <laughs> so an anxiety, um, sometimes anxiety um, has its roots or is fueled or made worse by our thought life, you know, the thoughts that we have. And some forms of anxiety are actually involuntary. Um, there may be times where you or someone you're close to you may say, I'm anxious and I have no idea why. And then anxiety can also have a medical or a physiological basis. Um, it can have to do with neurotransmitters in your brain. It can have to do with your nervous system um, being dysregulated. Um, so there's different reasons why people have anxiety. So two people can both say, I have anxiety, and have it for completely different reasons. So that's also important for us to know. And if you get nothing else from today, um, I'd really like for you to go home with this idea that oftentimes our anxiety is not a sin issue to repent of, but a wound that needs Jesus' healing. Um, a lot of times as Christians, we, we read those scriptures that talk about not being anxious. And so have you ever tried to tell yourself not to do something and like will yourself, um, you know, just to say, stop it, stop being anxious? That doesn't tend to work very well, right? Um, I've never met someone who's successfully stopped being anxious by saying, stop being anxious. If you have, please tell me. I, I would love to hear more about that. Um, but that sometimes, sometimes our anxiety could be indicative that we are, you know, not trusting in the Lord, not trusting in his truth, his promises, but not always. And so I, I hope that you can just expand your understanding of anxiety so that it's not always, oh, I'm not trusting God. What's wrong with me? I'm not being faithful. Oh, no, I'm being a bad Christian. Whatever might come into your mind. Um, and so we, I want to approach this with, with compassion and curiosity. So let's look at some scriptures. Because we're talking about healing anxiety through biblical principles. 
And so I have a few scriptures that most of you are probably pretty familiar with. Um, Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Um, a lot of times people just stop there. Or sometimes they stop after do not be anxious about anything and they stop and it's like, but there's more. <laughs> we got to read the whole thing, guys. So he says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So it goes on. God intervenes. And I've, I've definitely experienced this. I've experienced this this week. Um, that the peace of God does, um, does come in and guard my heart and mind. And then in Matthew, Jesus says, Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? The Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So you've probably heard that one too. And one more. Again, this is Jesus talking to Martha. He says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. And so this is right after, you know, Jesus has come to Mary and Martha's home. Martha is trying to be hostess of the year and running around and doing all the things. And Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet and just learning from him. And she gets frustrated and says, tell my sister to help me. And instead of Jesus just being like, no, Mary's fine, like, you get over yourself. He's very compassionate. He sees you're really anxious about a lot of things. I see that. But then he also redirects her and says, you know, and I see you're anxious about those things, but there are more important things happening here. And Mary is focusing on those more important things, which is sitting at my feet and, and listening to me. So in each of these passages, and there's many others as well. Um, when we think about what does the Bible mean when it says anxious or worry, we have to remember, you know, in first century, they didn't have all the understanding of psychology, of neurobiology that we have today. So I was wondering, what do they mean when they say anxious, when, when, when Paul or Jesus say anxious or worried? Um, it's probably not what I think of exactly. And so it's actually, in each of these passages, the word for anxious is the same Greek word. And what that means is to be anxious about, we're like, okay, that's super helpful, um, <laughs> to be careful or to take thought. And so I said, aha, there we go. So in those passages, you know, the anxiety that Jesus or Paul are talking about is the anxiety that comes from our minds, that comes from our thoughts specifically, that comes from worry about tangible things in our lives, not having enough of something, um, things not going right. And so, okay, 
they're talking about, when the Bible talks about anxiety, it is talking about anxiety that comes from our thoughts. And why that's important is, and I'll get into this more later, like I said, sometimes there's anxiety that you can't trace back to a specific thought. Um, and a lot of times when that's the case, the anxiety is actually a trauma response. It's something that is so deep in your nervous system that you are not consciously aware of it. Also, sometimes we experience anxiety, like I said, for physiological reasons. There's not an exact thought that we can trace it back to. And so when the Bible's talking about anxiety and not being anxious, it's not talking about the anxiety that comes because you are recovering from a traumatic experience or because there's something off in your nervous system. It's talking about our thought life. And the good news with that is we do have some level of control over our thoughts and our thought life. We don't necessarily have control what thoughts come into our brain because we have hundreds and hundreds of thoughts that come into our brain every minute. But we do have some choice um, of what we wanna do with them. So this is good news. And we can also gain some wisdom from these, from these scriptures. So, so let's talk about, so what are some principles from the Bible we can take to manage our anxiety? And so I love, I'm just going to back up to, to Jesus because he has good things to say. Um, there's so much wisdom um, in what he says here. And so one thing is realizing that worrying or anxious being anxious does not help anything. And sometimes that's a helpful statement for me to tell people, sometimes it's not. Um, but when it can be helpful, you know, Jesus says it here, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to a span of life? That's, a, that's what Jesus is saying. You being worried does not make these things that you're worried about magically appear. It does not improve your situation. And so sometimes I do have clients where I recognize that some part of them believes that being anxious is actually going to help. And I'll have people where I'll ask, what would it be like if, if you were able to let go of that anxious thought that you're just ruminating on? And they're like, well, I, I can't. And I say, well, why not? What, what makes it so you can't? And they're like, I, I don't know, I just can't, you know? And my guess, and I usually present this to them, and most of the time they say, yeah, you're probably right, is, you know, again, anxiety is fear of the future. Do we have control over what happens in the future? Not really. To maybe a little bit. We really have control over what's happening right now, what we're doing right now. And sometimes anxiety gives us this false sense of control of the future. Or people will think, well, if I keep thinking about all the worst case scenarios, then I'll be ready. Then if something bad happens, I'll be prepared. And I'm like, mm, yeah, you might, but you're also just driving yourself nuts right now. So, you know, and, and I put myself in that category. I do the same dang thing, so no judgment. So recognizing that when we are anxious, this is not helping our situation. And so something we can do is to ask, is there anything I can do about this now? If so, go do it. 
that's me and doing everything I can to prepare my body, you know, to prepare my house, to prepare for this little baby. Um, but then I have to recognize there comes a point where I've prepared all I can, and now I have to be okay with some unknowns, which is hard. So that's one step. Ask, you know, recognize my anxiety does not help. Um, same with, um, you know, my husband is in, in law enforcement and he's working nights right now, which is just great <laughs> as we're preparing to have a kid. Um, so we're like ships passing in the night. Before we got married, I used to get really worried about him on night shift because he wouldn't always be able to respond to me very quickly. Um, and so I would have to practice this and say, my worrying does not protect him. You know, my worry does not protect him or my loved ones or one day I'll have to be saying that about my child. Um, my worry does not protect them. And so instead I was able to say, is there anything I can do? And if not, I would, I would pray for him. I would entrust him to God and go to sleep. Um, and that helped me maintain sanity and it still helps me maintain sanity um, because it's just true. My worry does not protect him. I've also set, sometimes people set uh, moments where they're like, I'm not allowed to freak out until this happens. And I'm like, that's great. So I was like, I'm not allowed to freak out until I wake up in the morning and I still don't have a response from him. Um, and so sometimes people will do that. And I'm like, that's great too. Um, because then maybe there's more of a reason to be concerned. And... You know, all of this is easier said than done, so I don't say this like this is easy. Um, like, I'm, like I've said before, like, I'm still practicing these things, so I'm including myself. Um, so if you are anxious about something, there's nothing you can do about it, and you still have a lot of worry or dread, I actually tell people, play out your worst-case scenario, which seems counterintuitive. You might be like, what? Why would we do that? And the reason why I ask people to do that is that a lot of times our worries are like Mount Everest in our mind. And when we say them out loud, we realize they're actually not that bad. Most of the time, there are some worries that I'm like, no, that's pretty bad, you know. Um, but I'd say the majority of the time when I'll have clients where they just say it out loud and they're like, oh, that wouldn't be that bad. Or when they say it out loud, they realize how illogical and how unlikely that scenario is. So it's very different. When thoughts are in our head, they feel very different than when they're out in the world. So, so verbalize your worries to someone, even if it's just in a prayer to God, um, and see what that's like. See if that shifts the way you feel about those possibilities. You know, ask yourself, what would be the worst part of it? Um, you know, what am I afraid is going to happen and why would that be so bad? Those are some questions to ask yourself. And then those are also some, maybe some places where you can invite God into that and say, God, I'm, if this happens, you know, please, you know, help me to navigate it. Um, that's a place to remember like, oh yeah, I'm, I don't have to do this by myself, like God is with me. And so with all of this, we need to be aware of our thoughts and the way we think and the specific thoughts we have can cause 
or increase our anxiety. So it's so important to be aware of our thoughts. And scriptures talk about our thoughts. You know, in Colossians it says, take every thought captive for Christ. Um, in Romans 12 it says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Um, and then, you know, back in Philippians it says that the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So God is concerned with our minds, with our thought life. Um, I had one spiritual director who used to say that the spiritual battle is the battle of the mind. And that is, you know, the battlefield between, you know, us and the enemy who wants to tear us down. And so our thought life is very important in terms of our spiritual life as well. What what thoughts we allow in, what thoughts we um, allow um, or consider truth. So it's really important that we're aware of that. And a lot of times we let thoughts into our minds or we have beliefs that we're not consciously aware of. You know, a fish doesn't know it's in water. So that's kind of how we are with our, with our deep-held beliefs. And so sometimes one way that I treat anxiety is helping people to understand what are those deeply held beliefs um, that may or may not uh, be negatively impacting how you feel. And what I love about this is it's very biblical. There's actually a form of therapy um, called cognitive behavioral therapy that does just this, that is transforming yourself by the renewing of your mind. So I love that, um, you know, psychology is uh, starting to catch up with what God says, so, which is really cool. And so this um, CBT talks about how, you know, it's not really an event itself that... Um, causes our emotions, it's actually our belief about that event or our perception of that event that causes our emotions about it. For example, you know, you and I might go through the exact same experience, but afterwards have completely different feelings about it. You know, you and I might sit and watch the same speaker, and one of us might be like, oh my gosh, he was one of the best speakers I've ever heard. He was amazing. And you might be like, really? I thought he was pretty lame. Like, that was bad, you know? <laughs> and so we all have different perceptions. Another, excuse me, way to think about it is we all have a lens that we view the world through, and that lens is affected by different life experiences we have, how we're raised as children, and so we have to recognize, like, we don't all see things the same way. We don't all interpret things the same way. And so in CBT, we need to become aware of what am I believing about this right now? You know, maybe I really like a speaker and you don't because his tone of voice, his mannerisms remind you of someone who really hurt you in your life. And so you may not even be aware that that's why you don't like him. But if we really think about it, it's like, oh, well, I, I'm believing that this guy is just a narcissistic jerk who thinks he's the best thing on earth and is actually really not nice to people. And it's like, you have no idea. So if you could become aware of that, 
um, you know, then you can say it like, well, where am I getting this information from? You know, it, how do I know that's true? So what we do, um, I'll use another example, um, you know, for people who have more social anxiety, a lot of times, you know, the fear is, you know, um, people will think I'm stupid or people will think I'm boring or people won't like me. And so they're not really afraid of the social event. They're afraid of what people are going to think of them at the social event. And they're believing, they just automatically believe it's gonna be negative. And so what I might do with someone in my office um, is play this out. Okay, so the event is, you know, your, your best friend's uh, bridal shower, maybe. And um, you only know a few people who are gonna be there. And what you're believing about the event is that people are gonna think you're weird, you're dumb, you're boring, and aren't gonna like you. And so the feeling that results is worry, anxiety, um, maybe even resentment, even though nothing's happened yet. And then as a result, the action or behavior might be that you don't even go, you just stay home, um, which then causes some friction in your friendship, possibly, or maybe you go, but you are very shut down, you're not really talking to people, and then sometimes that can produce what we call a self-fulfilling prophecy, where it's like, well, if you had been yourself, people probably would have liked you quite a lot, but because you were so worried and overthinking, um, you really shut yourself down, and when people tried to talk to you, you, would, you wouldn't really talk to them, so they were kind of put off. And then that just kind of reinforces this belief, right? So you can see how this can be a really vicious cycle and really hard to get out of. And so where we find our empowerment is by becoming aware, what am I believing about this person, about myself, about the situation, and is it true? So then you challenge it. Is this true? And this is where you do that battle and you say, you know, well, how do I know it's true? Sometimes people will say, well, yeah, of course it's true. And I'm like, okay, how do you know? Like, convince me. And then they have nothing to say because there isn't any evidence except for a feeling within themselves or just the thought itself that came in. And so when we can recognize that, then I might say, okay, well, what do you know is true? And we stick with that. And then we renew our minds and we replace that automatic negative belief with something more, more honest, more true, more realistic. It's still, and this is not sugarcoating. Like sugarcoating does not help anybody. So, you know, I might say, you know, instead, the thought could be, instead of everyone's going to think I'm weird and dislike me, um, maybe a more accurate thing is I, I don't know what to talk to people about, and um, it might be kind of awkward at times. That's, that's a lot more accurate, and it's a lot less intense, right? Just jumping to, no one's going to like me. That's very intense, right? But focusing on the reality that you know, I'm worried about not having anything to talk about. And, you know, that's, that's real. 
And so someone might still go into this situation feeling nervous. That's okay. I feel nervous when I'm around new people and I'm, you know, not uh, familiar with the surroundings. Anytime I go somewhere new, I get a little nervous. That's totally reasonable. But again, it doesn't need to be to the point that I don't go or I don't do it. And that is a problem with social anxiety is um, not doing something actually makes the anxiety worse. And so um, actually another way I treat anxiety is I'm like, the thing you're afraid of doing, you actually need to do it. Um, which people hate hearing that. I'm like, I'm so sorry. Um, but avoidance actually increases anxiety. So that's another thing to be aware of. If you're afraid of a specific situation, um, place, activity, um, not doing it is actually reinforcing to your brain that that's a dangerous thing to do and it's gonna make your anxiety bigger. So by doing the thing, whether it's going to the social event or driving your car or going somewhere that feels scary, you know, you're teaching your brain, no, actually, this is okay. This is safe to do this. So that's another note. So when we get stuck in the cycle, we can be, you know, unintentionally allowing our anxiety to grow by avoiding the anxiety-producing situation. And I see that all the time. And so there's ways to do that. Um, you don't have to jump into the deep end of the pool, as I say. Um, I had a client who, during COVID, she developed a really big fear of being away from her home. And we learned over time why that was. Um, but I would say, okay, well, you know, she lived in Aptos and going to Costco was really scary for her. Um, for us here in Santa Cruz, um, Aptos and our Costco are like 20 minutes away, like seven miles, um, which in Santa Cruz, that's really far away. I'm from Southern California, and like, you guys think that's far away? Like, that's like, I used to drive like 30 miles just to go to my friend's house. Um, but, um, so that felt really far. So I was like, well, what if, can you drive somewhere closer? Maybe somewhere that's like three miles away. And so she eased into it. So you don't have to like force it and you know, grit your teeth and suck it up. But again, doing the thing that feels scary is part of our healing from anxiety. But again, you do it in these gradual ways. So again, so our thoughts. So we have control over our thoughts and our attitudes. It's not always easy, and we do have to have awareness to have that control, but we do have that possibility. So we don't have to be victims of our anxious thoughts, which is, again, really good news. But we don't always have control over our trauma reactions or our physiological responses. So if your anxiety or your loved one's anxiety has its roots in a traumatic experience, um, they're gonna need more. And I'll explain to you in a moment why doing an exercise like this um, may not actually help at all with their anxiety. Um, this can be incredibly helpful for so many people, but again, if your anxiety has its roots more in, in traumatic experiences, which I will define for you, um, this probably won't work for you. And so we're gonna talk about that. 
So, and I know these are kind of heavy things. You came to like family camp wanting to have fun and I'm talking about like anxiety and trauma and oh my gosh. But again, I think having this information is, sets people free. So um, I'm, I love working with trauma because when you know how to work with it right, um, people, I see the weight lifted off of people and it is an amazing thing and I give glory to God for that all the time. So I actually feel very hopeful when I talk about trauma and traumatic experiences because um, the more people understand, the more free they can be from those traumas. So the word trauma, it comes from the Greek word for wound. And you can think about, you know, there's the trauma unit in the hospital because we can have a head trauma. It can be physical, but it can also be, you know, more emotional. Um, and there isn't really one universally agreed upon definition for trauma in the therapy or psychology world. But the one that I use is a distressing experience that changes one's view of themselves and the world around them. And the reason why I like this is because it's so broad. And a lot of times people think that trauma is only for like um, veterans who've seen active combat, um, people who've been in a natural disaster, like a horrible you know, um, hurricane or earthquake. Um, or people who've experienced abuse, um, you know, so people will think, well, that's, that's trauma. What I experienced wasn't trauma, and they can minimize it. And so I like this because it, it broadens it. So I'll ask people, well, after this happened, do you think that changed the way you viewed yourself or the world around you? And they say, yeah, and I'll ask them how. And a lot, for a lot of people, um, the world feels less safe afterwards. So I'll say, you know, that's traumatic then. Um, very similarly to, you know, what I said about um, our perceptions, that we all perceive things differently, um, experiences affect us differently. So um, trauma isn't just trauma because of this. Again, you and I can go through the exact same experience, and it might be traumatic for you and not for me or vice versa, because it's really about our perception about the event. I, I use my husband as my example, because my husband sees really awful things um, in his line of work. And I hear about some pretty awful things, but I don't have to see it. Um, and I know if, if I went to some of the things that he went to, I would have nightmares, I would be having intrusive images, I, I would have a trauma reaction. He does not. Um, and that's not because he's dead inside, um, or um, he's actually a very sensitive, compassionate man. So I am like, how do you do this? And I'm just like, I think God just wired him that way. Um, but, you know, he and I could go witness the exact same thing, and one of us might be traumatized, the other one not. And so trauma is, is relative, so a lot of times people will compare themselves and say, oh, well, what I experienced wasn't that bad. So many people experience such worse things. And I'm like, well, yeah, that's true, but that doesn't negate the fact that this had a really um, major impact on you. So whenever I work with someone who's dealing with trauma, I say there are no comparisons here. 
it's not helpful to compare your trauma to someone else's trauma, um, for better or worse, you know. So it's all about how we perceive the event, and then what are the after effects. And trauma actually changes how our brain functions at its most basic levels. And so this is a picture of your brain. And this is showing something called triune brain theory, and that's the idea that we have like three brains in one, woohoo, um, which is so fun, thanks God. And we have our neocortex, which is our rational or thinking brain, and that's really the part of our brain that sets us apart from all other creatures on Earth. And especially at the very front, we have our prefrontal cortex. That's the last part of our brain to develop. It finishes when we're about 25 years old. Um, and that's where, you know, decision-making, impulse control, um, logic is. So no offense to anyone under 25 in the room, but there's a reason why, you, you know, you might look back and think, oh, when I was 16, I made some interesting choices. Like... <laughs> Hmm, how did I think that was a good idea? Part of it is our brains just aren't fully developed, and that's all of us. Um, but that's our rational thinking brain. That's what we're using when we're doing that cognitive behavioral therapy where we're acknowledging, identifying, and challenging our thoughts. And then we have our limbic brain, which is the emotional or feeling brain. And that little structure that kind of looks like a kidney bean, that's your amygdala. That's the alarm center. Um, that's the part of your brain that when it perceives that there's danger or a threat, it sounds the alarm. And that triggers your body to go into fight, flight, or freeze. How many people have heard about fight or flight? Yeah, pretty well known. There's also a freeze response um, where it's, it's like an animal playing dead or like a possum, you know, pretending to be dead. We do the same thing sometimes. I am a freezer. Um, so that's, that's how I roll a lot of the time. And so, um, so, and then we have our reptilian brain, which is our cerebellum and our brainstem. And that's like the instinctual brain. That's, um, that part of the brain deals with automatic functions. That's a part of your brain that tells your heart to beat, your stomach to digest. Um, you don't, and you don't have to work for that, right? That just happens automatically. So those are the automatic functions. So traumatic experiences affect our limbic brain and our reptilian brain. And when we are in the midst of a traumatic experience, an experience where we feel threatened um, or we feel like we are in danger, the rational brain, the neocortex, shuts down. Because if you are running from a bear in the forest, you don't need to think about what kind of bear is that? Is that a California grizzly or is that, what is that? No, you don't need that. That would slow you down, right? And you would get caught and die. And so, um, you know, so your brain really wants you to live. And so your brain basically says, what do we not need right now? You know, we need, we need to triage. We need to just give everything we have to the parts of the brain and body that are, that are gonna help you survive. Um, and so your rational, logical brain shuts down. And it's just automatic function and emotion. And so 
what happens is that later on in our lives, if we perceive anything in our environment that reminds us of that really scary, threatening experience, you know, your amygdala takes that in and says, oh my gosh, it's happening again. And sounds the alarm, you go into fight, flight, or freeze, and you might experience anxiety, you might experience panic, and you don't know why. And you maybe feel like you're going a little cuckoo because you don't know why. Um, and the reason why you may not know why is because those stimuli that your limbic system are picking up on may be completely unconscious. An example I use is um, maybe there's a smell, you know, something you were smelling at the time of the trauma that you weren't really consciously aware of at the time because it really wasn't the most important thing. But your brain is still taking in that sensory information and storing it. And so sometimes certain smells will really take people back to that traumatic experience, but they aren't aware that that smell is associated with that traumatic experience. It could be anything though, it can be visual, it can be auditory, it can be tactile. Um, I have many clients who don't like when people stand right behind them um, or don't like sitting while other people are standing. Um, so it can just be where you are in relation to other people in a room. Um, so all those things can be that reminder and it's not a conscious logical thought. And so the reason why I said the CBT may not work is because you need your rational thinking brain in order to do CBT. And if it's offline, so again, when you have a trauma reminder, your neocortex goes offline again. So you don't have logic. So you can sit there all day and say, I'm fine, I'm fine. There's nothing to be afraid of. Everything's okay. Your brain will not believe you because remember these guys, I had a professor who called the lower, we also call this the lower brain or the survival brain. He called it King Kong and it said, King Kong is in charge now. Um, so, so you can't logic your way out of it. And that's where I think a lot of people judge themselves or that's where people can say, oh, I'm, I'm not trusting God. Um, I don't want to be anxious. Why am I anxious? And can beat themselves up. And this is where I really want people to have compassion and say, it's, it's not your fault. Um, you can't just remind yourself of truth or scripture or, you know, pray it away. Um, not that prayer is not effective. I think it very much is. But it, it's different. So just recognizing that anxiety is not the same for everybody. And again, trauma also makes us perceive threats where there are none because your brain is trying to protect you from going through another horrible experience. Um, let's see. This is just another diagram of your, your threat system. So, um, you know, when the amygdala does sound the alarm, different things happen in your body. So you might recognize some of these symptoms. You probably can't see it super well, but you might get dizzy or lightheaded. Your breathing becomes quicker, shallower. Um, your adrenal glands release adrenaline. And sometimes I actually can feel when adrenaline or cortisol, which is our stress hormone, like flows through my body. Um, bladder urgency, so muscles in the bladder relax in response to stress. So that's why sometimes people actually like 
wet themselves um, in a scary situation. Um, palms get sweaty, muscles tense, your hands get cold. Um, and that's because um, blood is being forced towards your major muscle groups, like your legs or your arms, so that you can either run or fight. Um, your heart beats faster, your mouth gets dry, um, your vision might change. Some people notice they get tunnel vision. Um, and that's kind of just because it's like, we need to get rid of anything that isn't necessary for me to focus on right now. So this is what happens when we go into fight or flight. They're all different things. Um, so if you experience some of these symptoms, that might be, um, as part of your anxiety, that this might be what's happening for you. Yes. So it sounds like you, your response is to freeze. Yeah, so that's, so know that that is normal, okay? Because I can imagine that's really scary. Yeah, so sometimes just knowing that, that like, okay, I'm not, you know, the first time I had a panic attack, I thought I was dying. So I feel you. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, so that's really common. So I'm a freezer too. Um, and I actually sometimes lose consciousness, which is really not fun. Um, so, because everything's just shutting down so much. Um, so yes, people will freeze. Um, another thing with that is sometimes in the middle of the trauma, um, and this is often true for people who've experienced um, sexual abuse or sexual trauma, they will freeze in the midst of it. And then they will feel a lot of shame that they didn't do anything. They're like, well, I just sat there. I just let it happen. And it's like, well, no, your body shut down because your brain thinks through what is the best response that you know, will most likely lead to me surviving this. And sometimes your brain says the best response is just to be still and to just freeze. And so having that kind of response can actually, people can really beat themselves up because they'll say, I didn't even do anything, I just sat there. It's like, well, no, you, you froze. Um, that was a threat response. It's an involuntary thing. And thankfully, there are things you can do with that. So you're not, you're not doomed to just live with that. Um, but yeah, that's just another note on the freeze response. So good to be aware. When I teach my clients about all of this, just sometimes knowing and understanding why what's happening to you is happening to you can help release some of the shame, some of the, you know, scariness of like, what the he hey is happening to me right now? Um, and so if, if any of that resonated with anyone else, I, I hope you experience a little bit of that relief that you're not, you know, you're not losing control, you're not going crazy. Um, these are normal responses and trauma responses they are normal responses to an abnormal experience. Trauma is not a normal experience. And so our response to it is not going to feel normal, right? And so I always tell people, no, like the freezing, that is a normal response to an abnormal situation. You are not the problem here. What happened to you is the problem. This is a quote from Bessel van der Kolk, who he's kind of the man when it comes to trauma research right now. Um, he's done a lot for the field, which is great. And what he says is, from my vantage point as a researcher, 
we know that the impact of trauma is upon the survival or animal part of the brain, like I was telling you. That means that our automatic danger signals are disturbed and we become hyper or hypoactive. So aroused or numbed out. We become like frightened animals. We cannot reason ourselves out of being frightened or upset. It is only partly an issue of consciousness. Much has to do with the unconscious parts of the brain that keep interpreting the world as being dangerous and frightening and feeling helpless. You know you shouldn't feel that way, but you do. And that makes you feel defective and ashamed. And so I think it's so important for us to recognize if you or someone that you love has you know, regular anxiety, understanding where is that anxiety coming from? If it is their thought life, yeah, like let's work to learn and understand what are the thoughts that contribute to that anxiety. You can like help people. I often tell people like share these things with your friends and family. I've had friends who are like, oh, are you thinking this right now? And I'm like, yep, I totally am. I'm totally believing that, that lie, that distorted thought, and it's so helpful. But if you or your loved one have anxiety because of a previous trauma, that's going to need some different interventions. Um, and so some other things you can ask, because sometimes it is hard to discern where is this coming from. Um, you know, to ask, did anything trigger me? Like, what does this situation remind me of? Uh, what is it, who does this person remind me of? Those are all good exploratory questions. And so if your anxiety is trauma-based, so you need to address and treat the trauma itself. You know, the anxiety is just like a surface thing, but the, the root is the trauma. So if you treat the trauma, the anxiety will probably resolve itself as well. So, and Jesus can be part of that healing. I've, I've seen it. Jesus has been part of my healing. Um, and he has been, he, Jesus hangs out in my therapy room all the time. Um, I mean, he's always there. Um, whether I'm working with a Christian client or not. And some, there are some specific treatments for trauma that I'll just list a few. I'll say them slowly if you want to write any down. Uh, one that I do, um, the shorthand is EMDR. It stands for eye movement. Wow, pregnancy brain, what is the D? <laughs> that's so funny. It's like when you forget to do something that's automatic. Eye movement, desensitization, thank you, and reprocessing. So that's a mouthful. So we just call that EMDR. That's a very effective treatment um, that has a lot of empirical evidence. And it's also shown that once someone has gone through the treatment and are no longer actively currently disturbed by past uh, memories, that it stays that way. I had a client who was like, is this for real? She texted me like two days after we, we did a session with EMDR and she's like, can, can this be possible? I've, I've been affected by this for like 30 years. And I said, yes, it's possible. She's like, that's weird. And I was like, I know. So um, it's not the silver bullet. It, it doesn't like work amazingly for everyone, but I have seen it be incredibly effective for a lot of people. So you can definitely look that up. There's also a newer treatment called brain spotting. And it's one word. It's a made up word. Um, I don't know as much about that one. I've only gone to one short, just kind of informational 
um, training, but that's something else, and it kind of has some similar things. But both of those treatments, they go to those more primitive parts of your brain, which is what we need. Um, sometimes using art uh, can help because art is accessing the emotional side of our brain, not the rational logical. Somatic therapy, somatic is S-O-M-A-T-I-C, and that has to do with our body because we really feel uh, trauma in our bodies. Um, there's another form of therapy called internal family systems, or IFS, and that has to do with working with different parts of us. Um, and there's people who've kind of uh, not, not totally changed it, but have kind of made a Christian version of it. So it's great where like Jesus is a part of it. And so I love that. I'm just starting to learn more about IFS. So there's, there are things you can do. Um, if you are experiencing anxiety as a result of a traumatic experience, you are not powerless. You are not helpless. There are things you can do. Um, and so there's, there's hope. So I hope you leave here feeling like, oh my gosh, I can, I can do something about this. Um, and lastly, just as I, as I close, um, just remember that feelings demand to be felt. Um, a lot of us, myself included, even though I preach this stuff all day, every day, I sometimes also try to avoid my feelings. <laughs> I will um, stay really busy, or I notice if I'm on my phone more than usual, I'm like, hmm, what am I avoiding? And sometimes we're aware that there's some difficult feelings, whether it's anxiety, sadness, grief, um, and we might need to, we might try to stuff our anxiety and then cope with it through food, through relationships, substances, um, just numbing out on TV and our phones, sex, um, or even with our faith. Um, we might use our faith as a way to distance ourselves from our pain by keeping ourselves busy with, with church activities and service, um, you know, and just saying, oh, well, God's got me, so I'm fine. I'm fine. Everything's fine, right? But we really um, need to acknowledge what we're feeling and acknowledge our anxiety and remember that we have reassurance um, in Christ, that we have his presence with us, and that we know that Christ has made all things right in the big picture. And that doesn't mean that nothing bad is going to happen to us now. We still live in this broken world, but we know that we will be okay. And I've definitely been through things that were horrendous, um, and I know I'm okay. And our souls are secure with him, and we can trust that God will give us what we need to recover. And that is our, that is our foundation. And that is why we don't need to be slaves to anxiety and slaves to fear. And so a, a thought I often have when I do have anxious thoughts is, that would be awful, but I know I would be okay eventually. So I invite you to rest in those promises of God. And so I know we're just about at the end of our time, so I'm going to hang out for a bit if anyone does have questions, but I also want people to feel the freedom to leave. But thank you so much for your attention and for being here today. And feel free to come ask me questions if you want.